Puget Sounds Good. With Jamie Kolacheki. On the Native Land Digital site, native-land.ca, you can enter a home address and see which Native tribes lived on the land. My home is on Coast Salish, Stiligwamish, Snohomish, and Tulalip land, but my knowledge of these cultures is limited. I remember a couple units in elementary school on American Indians, but I learned more about the Sioux than the Snohomish. And we didn't learn about Coast Salish peoples at all in Washington State history in high school. My senior class project started with the establishment of the logging town and the mill. So basically, I'm curious about my neighbors and the history of the land that I love. At the Hebulb Cultural Center in Tulalip, Tessa and Michael were kind enough to walk me through the exhibits and then sit down to talk about the history of the tribes and bands who lived here, what's happening now with their successors, and where they hope to grow. So, Hebulb? Hebulb. Hebulb. I kept saying Hybulb to myself because I just read it first, you know. That's one of the main questions we get. How do you say the name of your museum? <laughs> yeah. People always say Hybulb. Yeah, yeah. We get hill bulb quite a bit. <laughs> hill bulb. Like that's harder to say than he bulb, but yeah, I, I get that. Um, so yeah, um, when was uh, the museum established? Uh, we opened in August of 2011. Yeah. And you know, it was a 30 year dream of the Tulip tribe. So for 30 years, there was planning and preparation and discussion. Um, so, we, I think, were fortunate in our lifetimes to see it come yeah. to fruition yeah. and to have it here for our community. And so many of our tribal members, like our um, late leader, Hank Gobin, who was on the project for the museum for its entirety, yeah. all of those 30 years, and he was able to see it open and celebrate its first anniversary. And yeah. um, for me, and, and you too, which is very special to be a part of that with him. Yeah, yeah. And to, like you were saying, to be able to walk, like, family members through mm -hmm. here and, like, um, you know, to be able to refresh some of those memories or, like, yeah. share that information that, like you were saying, with the, um, like, with the canoe paddles. Mm -hmm. Like, that's so special to be able to not just, like, collect all of that, but then to reshare that knowledge with each other. It's pretty amazing. There's a lot of... History here for tribal members. We didn't show you the family tree project. Oh, yeah. So there's a kiosk where members come in and they type in their tribal ID number. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like your social security number. Yeah. And it'll bring up your earliest recorded ancestors. So when I entered my tribal ID the first time and looked at the tree, I said, I don't know who any of these, right. any of these names. Yeah. They're, Indian, they're the Indian names um, because the first ancestor was born in. 1750s wow. is when they started recording yeah. ancestors. So when uh, I have family members come from out of town, um, it's just so amazing to see them go through the museum and connect with their history and learn about themselves. Yeah. Yeah. My grandfather is going to be 92 in February. Wow. And he, at 92 years old, is not on the family tree. Oh, wow. But his parents and grandparents and great-grandparents are. So wow. that is just kind of a sense of earliest ancestor. Mind blowing. <laughs> yeah. To, I don't know where they kept it. Yeah. It just a couple of generations from them. But my grandfather is really only three or four generations from his yeah. earliest known ancestor according to the United States government. Yeah. Um, and he's not on the tree at almost 92 in February. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, um, let me get back to the beginning of my notes. We'll do, we'll do chronologically. Um, so yeah, a huge part of, of the museum here is the longhouse. Um, how, did, how did that get built? I believe that the longhouse was actually a second addition to the museum from the way I've heard it, that it was not part of the original plan, yeah. but it had come up in later conversation and it was a, an addition. I, yeah, it's in a lot of our early, we have models from like the 90s and there is a, a longhouse long in yeah. there. So 
we that the planning started before our time. So yeah. yeah. Well, what purpose? What purpose did the longhouse serve, like in in the culture? Everything. I mean, yeah. we lived in the longhouse. We met in the longhouse. Celebrations were yeah. in the longhouse. I, I mean, it is told that everything happened in the longhouse. Yeah. Your entire family would live in yeah. the longhouse. Um, ours, we call it model size. It's yeah. really like a model know, home. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> Half as wide and half as long as a traditional longhouse. Yeah. So you would be partitioned off. So like you and your spouse and children would be in one partition, and then another partition would be your sibling and their spouse and their yeah. children. Um, but some longhouses were used for meetings and gatherings and ceremony, celebration. Yeah. So it was so important that we had one here um, to let people know that. It's not a thing of the past. Yeah. It's also not a teepee. It's yeah. a longhouse. <laughs> it's very different. Yeah. Um, and that we still I mean, it's a, it's a permanent structure. It's not something to be, like, picked yes. up and moved along. Like, yeah. it, it's something that is, like, a foundation for your family. Yeah. And your, yeah. 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 She's not going anywhere. Nomadic. Yeah. Exactly. Taking your longhouse with you. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and the... Um, the poles at the at the front of the house. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about those? The, so the poles in there, they're actually on the interior of the longhouse. So when you go in, there'll be usually like four on one side and four on the other. Mm -hmm. And family crests are painted on the pole, and that's where your family that represents you. You sit in that area. Yeah. That's what historically, but now everyone gathers in the longhouse. Um, another term for longhouses that I hear or the house house of learning. Oh. That's where education took place and still takes place. It's yeah. storytelling, um, learning to like weave happened during the winter time. Yes. In the spring months everyone families were out gathering. Yeah. Um, but today longhouses still don't have electricity. For the most part. For the most yeah. part, yeah. yeah. Some more modern floor. have yeah. moved to cement floors and even potbelly stoves. Ooh, yeah. Um, our people. They've been debating. Yeah. Yeah, there's debate because a lot of the uh, wood now is chemically treated. Oh, yeah. And so when the big fire is going out, there's fumes. Yeah. Being yeah. Yeah. Right yeah. But our traditional longhouse is dirt floor. And, and when you travel to another reservation, um, the longhouse will will tell you where to sit. So there yeah. will be an area for Tulalip, and there'll yeah. be an area for Swinomish and Lummi, and um, just like the poles would signify where your family or your clan would sit. Yeah. yeah. And the four that you guys have in that one, um, who was it that you said made those? Uh, William Shelton. Yeah. Yeah. He was a renowned carver who, he carved canoes, um, poles, story poles, and there are poles around the United States that are still up. Yeah. He sent them to Illinois, yeah. uh, Pennsylvania, um, all over Washington. Washington. Yeah, Europe. There was an 80-foot pole that he had carved in Olympia. He it was at the state convention. I mean, he was carving massive poles yeah. on his own with limited tools and resources. So our artists I mean, still carve story poles and welcome figures, but the technology has advanced yeah. so much. <laughs> William was doing this on his own with the old fashioned hand tools. Like yeah. And yeah. chisel and natural lighting. He would, yeah. you could, we have video footage of him carving. Oh, wow. He has this hand crank where he maneuvers the logs and just rolls them back and forth, and I'm just like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> These guys have lifts. Not that it's not difficult, right? Oh, carving yeah. Carving is so hard. Yeah. But um, it's amazing what he was able and the detail he was able to accomplish. Yeah. With his resources, that's what is so amazing. And then to get a pole of eighty feet long. Yeah. To Olympia or a sixty foot pole in Chicago. Yeah. The logistics alone. He was uh, good friends with um, one of the early, what was his name? He owned a 
think a lot of the trains, and so he has friends and he just throws oh yeah holes on just the train, and yeah, <laughs> ship them off, yeah. yeah. And then, um, so what was like his um, the years of like the when he was doing all of his carving? I'd say he started around nineteen thirteen is when he started out, and then he became prolific throughout the twenties and thirties. When was yeah. he born? What was his timeline? He was born in 1868. 1868, that's right. I wanted to say 78. And he says in his book that he learned from his uncles, but I've heard from other tribal members that he's self-taught. Mm -hmm. yeah, what was his book called? Uh, Strong Links. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a little book. Yeah, uh, it's a little tiny book. Story. I can see it. <laughs> Story of the Pacific Northwest. Maybe. Okay. Yeah. Story that makes sense. Yeah. You can type in William Shelton book and it'll come up. Yeah. Right? There's yeah. tons of them on Amazon. We'll find it. Yeah. Draw a blank. Put you on the spot. You're at capacity. I know. <laughs> Sorry, William. Um, and then um, you said Wayne Williams was a big part of getting this place together and that a lot of um, a lot of the artifacts and things like that are, are from him or from his family. Um, yeah. How did you guys how did you guys get into getting all of those and collecting those? So um, a lot of the collection, we, some of the artifacts are from the 1800s, and that was because uh, William Shelton would hide the artifacts in his home because Indian agents would go and oh, yeah. burn them. So it's a large collection of like 200 boxes of artifacts. Wow. <laughs> and then 150 of archival materials. But the family just kept everything and then it was on to the next generation, William Shelton's daughter, Harry Shelton Dover, yeah. who was an advocate of um, preserving history and culture. And yeah. then passed it on to Wayne and then Wayne kept everything. And then there's at one point when Harriet was alive at the Burke Museum, asked, oh, yeah. asked for the collection. They really were advocating to get it donated to Burke, and they yeah. thought about it, and then Wayne said that Harriet said, "No, we're going to save it for our own." Yeah. yeah, yeah, like it's not the same access if the people that are living here that that history is so relevant to can't access it. Like going all the way to Seattle to just like try and remember something isn't really feasible yeah. on a, a regular basis. If you haven't read Harriet's book. Called, called Tulalip from my heart. Okay. And of course, we sell it, but you can also get it just about anywhere. And it's on Amazon. And you can even reserve it from the public library. Oh, perfect. Um, but that's a great book. And that talks about, I mean, what she witnessed as a little girl yeah. and what she had been told from her parents and grandparents and um, lots of juicy reservation gossip. <laughs> <laughs> the best. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the book... Uh, was published by Darlene Fitzpatrick. She's still mm -hmm. living. It was Harry Sheldover's anthropology teacher oh, cool. at, yeah. at Everett Community oh, College. Right. Mm -hmm. Harry was so interested in um, learning what they were teaching about Native Americans in yeah. the anthropology classes in the 1970s. So she yep. registered and she sat in front of the class and she talks about this in a book and she challenges you know, the teacher, and then yeah. her and the teacher became really close. <laughs> yeah. And Darlene um, just recorded her um, and pretty much published the book in her period's work. Oh, okay. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Or it, it's like such a, um, so close to your tradition, too, where it's basically like your, like, oral tales and you know, telling people your stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Um, and then you were saying it was a it was an exhibit before the museum opened for um, your veterans. Like the how far back the history goes and how many people like have served from the reservation is pretty amazing. So it goes back to World War One, and this was a time when Native Americans were not considered. Citizens. Right. Mm. So well, some of our toilet men, I'd say maybe, I'm trying to think, 15 signed up, enlisted yes. in the army because they were so passionate about becoming U.S. citizens. 
Yeah. Um, but there is history that one did go off to the Spanish-American War. Yeah. And we do have a flag from William Shelton's collection. Mm -hmm. So it could be, yeah, might validate that it's true. But yeah, um, yeah. Every, uh, every, let's see, I estimate we have 150 veterans. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Do you want to talk about our Veterans Day event next month? Oh yeah, sure. So every year we do a, a large yes. It is. No, it's November already. My gosh. Um, we do a large Veterans Day event, and it is the museum has free admission to all veterans and active military and their families. Yeah. The day. So basically, it's a free admission day. In the past, we've had our own tribal veterans uh, host programming. Oh, awesome. Yeah. You know, so they would do a culture series and a lecture. We've got like a healing event. We also uh, bring in the flags in the morning and then um, do roll call. Yeah. So any veteran that's here is able to stand up and to say when they served and which branch. And yeah. Um, you can also do, after roll call's done, you can um, do roll call for anybody that might not be with us. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, we can't do an event this year. Yeah. Um, so we'll still honor free admission. And yeah. a lot of our veterans were actually going to be making a trip to Washington, D.C. with our veterans department. Oh, yeah. For the unveiling of the uh, country's or the capital's veterans memorial. Yeah. So that event is also really not taking place yeah. any longer. Yeah. But they will still go along with their plant programming and okay. live stream it. So oh, we perfect. will have yeah. that live streamed in our longhouse yeah. throughout cool. the day. Um, so we're still trying to figure out like if it will be a full day of activities yeah. or if it will just be an open speech. Yeah. So the um, head of our veterans department is trying to get a hold of his contact and yeah. figure that out. Yeah. So um, Another thing we do is we have a group of quilters, just tribal mm, members yeah. who quilt, and they started, I think, five years ago quilting uh, veterans' blankets for oh, cool. our oldest veterans. Yeah. This year, I think we have seven wow. quilts. That's, I think, the most we've ever had. Yeah. Mm, they're pretty special. I yeah, hope that's beautiful. an accurate number. Yeah. They do <laughs> but, amazing quilt work. Yeah. I mean, beautiful. Yeah. Um, they're actually in the office now, some of them. The quilts? Mm -hmm. Ooh. Yeah, that's pretty so exciting. They are usually honored in their families mm -hmm. at our veterans' event, yeah. but they will do home visits this yeah. year. Yeah, keep them safe. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, veterans are very important to us as a tribe and yeah. as a sovereign nation especially. Um, my grandpa at 92 was not able to serve because he had varicose veins, but oh, his yeah. younger brother Clyde mm -hmm. was drafted. So he wasn't able to be drafted, but his younger brother yeah. Clyde was. And um, they said it was a traditional teaching that, you know, even though you weren't a United States citizen, or even though you didn't have the right to vote, you would go and fight to not lose any more than you already have. Yeah, yeah. So it was still a big honor to be a veteran, and you know, we're a warrior community, so. And do you, I, I certainly don't know off the top of my head, um, what year, um, like, the tribes were considered U.S. citizens and when they got the right to vote? Was it 1924 they became citizens and then the right to vote was 68. 68. Yeah. yeah, I think it was 60. That is way too late for that number to be. That's that insane. Because, like, your politicians at that level, like, state and country government, like, are still affecting you guys. Right. And to not have a voice in that is just crazy. Mm -hmm. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. As insane as everything is right now. Like, I know. oh, my gosh. <laughs> Try not to check the news. My goodness. That's why I turned my phone off. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, my gosh. No, I stayed up way too late last night. Just like, um, and then um, part of um, Wayne Williams' collection as well was that huge, amazing canoe. Um, can you tell me that story? 
about the big canoe. About the big canoe, yeah. Yeah. Um, so Wayne had contacted Hank, the former director who found that Michelle was talking about, and said he would wanted to donate everything in his yard. And when we showed up, we didn't see anything because <laughs> it was so overgrown. It was just blackberry galore. Yeah. And so our maintenance department helped, our forestry department, um, there was maintenance, waste management, and then, yeah, started clearing all the brush. And then I think the first thing we saw were the four canoes under the collapsed shed. Mm -hmm. And we're like, oh wow, and then they kept going, uh, just clearing, and they thought that's all that was in the yard, and then just all these other carved artifacts just magically unveiled themselves yeah. in the brush. Uh, there were how many poles? There were the four longhouse poles. Mm -hmm. Let's see, there's four canoes. Uh, there's an eagle figure. Uh, I'd say there's like 12 oh large carvings. <laughs> large carvings. Yeah. yeah. No, that canoe is no joke. Yeah. <laughs> and the canoe had collapsed in the, into the earth, so we had to hand dig trench so yeah. we could put boards underneath and hand carry it onto a truck so it was a pretty long-term project yeah and um what's the story of of like the canoe itself like how it was made it was uh first made in quinault this is the documented history and oral history and it was part of a dowry for a wedding that was going to take place here at Tulela. and the wedding never happened it was between a bulk Quinault man, and the wedding failed, never occurred, and so the canoe was abandoned on the beach yeah. at Tulela Bay, and then a woman named Sarah Heck acquired it, and then William Shelton wanted to purchase this canoe, so all like, business transactions had to go through the Indian agent. Through the BIA? Yeah. yeah, through the BIA, which was down at the bay. And so we have all of the documentation of this transaction. There was a receipt that was produced mm -hmm. that showed he paid $50 to Sarah Heck and got the canoe. What year was that? I think 1924. Mm -hmm. And then there's the gold diary entry of him finding out about the canoe because William Shelton, as I mentioned, kept a diary yeah. between the years 1896 until the day he died in 1938. Yeah. So he wrote about the transaction and the rest is history. Mm -hmm. We have photos of the family traveling yeah. you know, to Whidbey Island in the canoe. They did like a little commercial or a little video with the canoe. Was that, is that the canoe that was in there? Were they... Was there a video of that? I haven't seen that one. Oh, what's the video I'm thinking of where it's... We, and there's a picture too, and it's like it's not in the water though. It's in. Oh, you're talking about the photograph where he's like posing in it. Yes. Like the, it's a commercial. Like yes. A, yeah. Like a I think it's in that one. Yeah. Yeah. He's in his you know war bonnet, which he yeah. has more, which is yeah. not rep representative of yeah. the area. There was another like little video that I'm thinking of, and maybe it wasn't the canoe. Maybe it was a carving, where I think Wayne is in it as well. There, and there's the uh, video footage of. Shelton Carvey in 1928, and he's got his two granddaughters. Yeah, he's talking to them. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. And then Harriet walks in, yes. and they talk. Okay. Yeah. No, that was so interesting, like, those pictures of, um, of William, where he's in, like, full Plains Indian regalia versus, like, coastal Indian regalia. And, like, I think... Like your display said that it was just like so that people would recognize that he was Native American. Well, William was a total pioneer. Yeah. I mean, Wayne told us a story about William first seeing Indian agents and boarding schools officials when he was a child. And he saw two men communicating on a piece of paper and he told his grandfather he wanted to learn how to do that. Basically, yeah. he wanted to learn to read and write. Yeah. So he wanted to go to the boarding school and um, they called it a priest school yeah. at the time. It was before the boarding school. Um, and he said, no, I mean, you can't go there. You'll, they'll take you, you could die, like anything could happen. Yeah. And he did 
register himself and he learned to read and write and he was able to see at a young age, and I think he was actually a teenager when that happened. Yeah, he was like 17. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that was important, that he needed to know how to read and write yeah. to get on. And when he petitioned the governor for a longhouse back on the reservation, he didn't petition it as a need for us as a community. Mm -hmm. It was petitioned as a need so the outside people can see what a longhouse looked like. And so they can see what took place in so the smart. longhouse. Yeah. Um, he took a group of children and amongst some families, he gets a lot of heat because they said he was selling culture. Um, oh, yeah. So it would be like a ribbon cutting or a fair or whatever. Yeah. And he would take this group of children and perform. He would literally perform. Yeah. But what he was doing is practicing culture yep. and teaching culture and recording it yeah. at a time where it was literally illegal. Yeah. Yeah. Like he found a way to work in the system Absolutely. to keep culture alive. Right. Absolutely. And so, I mean, and he takes a lot of heat for that because yeah. culture can't be performed. And yeah. that's exactly what he was doing. But he was doing what had to be done to preserve the songs and the dances yeah. um, of our people. Yeah. Yeah. So he was such a pioneer. I mean, just a visionary is what yeah. he was. I just. He was very progressive for his time. Oh, right. yeah. I mean, all the kids on TikTok could probably learn about personal branding from him. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, so clever. Yeah. He was clever is a good word because there's newspaper interviews where he he talks about, he fibs a little bit, he would say, I grew up in a teepee. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, You're like, a teepee wouldn't last five minutes in the rain. <laughs> well, and then I went on a tirade to say, I mean, yeah. he would wear buckskin and yeah. dresses because... Like the beading and like... That yeah. is yeah. what people wanted to see. Yeah. And it didn't matter if they saw that and heard Coast Salish songs. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but yeah. um, that's what people wanted to see and he was really really good at marketing absolutely yeah. yeah yeah i mean some of those polls he had sold to the boys and the boy scouts mm -hmm. one of those polls and oh, so wow. boy scouts who were already teaching about what they perceived as history yeah actually had an artifact now and it's funny you bring up marketing because in all his correspondence letters he you know really sells his polls and he's like okay i'm going to give you a really good deal uh -huh. make sure you do not tell anyone about this for you only. Every single person. <laughs> and then everybody gets the exact same price. <laughs> Such an artist. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If an artist wants to tell you something, they're like, don't tell anybody about this price. <laughs> just between us. Yeah, it's just funny to that. know that that's gone on for hundreds of years. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then um, you've got the... Um, the archaeological cases um, along that wall in the front, um, and where did where did those artifacts come from? So those were donated from a local archaeologist, um, John L. Matson. He's still living. Uh, he contacted us back in two thousand nine or ten, and uh, he both applied to become a certified archaeological repository for the state of Washington. Mm -hmm. And it was certainly became certified, so we were able to take in the donation. And he had some very significant sites, some collections from the Beterbos, which is a wet site um, that has been dated to about 20, 2,500 years old. So wow. there's basket fragments, there's actually fish weir pieces. Yeah. And the Burke Museum holds the other part of this collection. Yeah. And um, so there's four different sites. Now there's three. That's right, we've changed yeah. the other one. There's three different sites in each case. Yeah. And um, you were saying that that is something that's kind of unique for you to have because it's not necessarily like a cultural value. Yeah, yeah. Because when we find something, we typically would bury it. Yeah. But um, we're fortunate to have the certification because now when we monitor sites, yeah. if it's a private uh, property owner, they can really decide to donate. To us. Okay. If they yeah. don't want to keep it, if they feel like it belongs to us, yeah. Which fortunately is usually the majority of the cases. Yeah. So 
that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's just like amazing to see something that's that old that is still like together and preserved mm -hmm. the way that it was. Like when you think of a wet site, you don't think that that is something that would be able to preserve it, but it's just pretty yeah, unique. because the soil had low yeah. acidity. There's no air yeah. getting to it. It's pretty special. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, your welcome figures in the front are amazing. Mm -hmm. Like right when I walked in the doors, like they're right there. They're so beautiful. And like you can see the skill in them. And um, how did those how did those make it to you guys? Um, they were commissioned for the Hebo Cultural Center. Yeah. So we have artists that work um, for the tribe, and they were tasked. James Madison, who did Kaya, and Joe Gobin, who did Gentleman Figure. We never named him. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in all fairness, James named Kaya. We have yeah. not yeah. heard that name. Um, but it's two, I mean, two master carvers, um, two different generations, two very different carving styles. And I think that that's yeah. what is so beautiful about them is yeah. they were not a matching set. Yeah. So here we kind of consider Kaya our grandmother because she is, that's yeah. Kaya. And she's, you know, watching out for everybody here. She's yeah. making sure everything is doing what it needs to be doing like a grandmother should. And he is like a warrior, right? And his paddle is in an upright position, meaning mm -hmm. he's welcoming everybody, but he's also making sure everything is staying in line. And yeah. So that's what we tell kids when they come here. Like, consider her your grandmother. If you are doing something you shouldn't be doing, she's going to know about it. Yeah. And he's going to enforce any rules. <laughs> I love that. Um, and then, um, what are they both? What are they both made out of? Cedar. Cedar. Both mm -hmm. are cedar. And then, um, what was it? The like cracks in them. Checking. Checking. Yeah. So can I tell you something pretty special about the cedar that they were carved with? Yes. So if you've ever been to the Tulalip Resort, there are three very large poles. In yeah. The lobby. Yeah. So those three poles and those two welcome figures and a variety of other um, pieces were all carved from the same. 200 foot old growth cedar oh tree. Oh my gosh. No, like, and the ones at the casino are huge. Yeah. You wouldn't think there would be any tree left. <laughs> well, and, yes, and when you see the tree, like a lot of times, um, because on a 200 foot old growth cedar tree, I think that the diameter of it would be what? 30 feet? Oh my gosh. <laughs> it means yeah. Right. So it's cut in half. Okay. And then it's cut in quarters. And then it's Okay, cut, that definitely makes more know, sense. It's yeah. just, there's so much of the tree to be used. Yeah. So. Well, and um, you have that beautiful display um, that is technically not interactive right now, um, where it's all the different layers of the cedar tree. Yeah. And um, so, like, how, how does each layer of the tree get used? I mean, You've got which part of it? The heartwood is the carving part? Probably more, well, no, because you would take the planks and you could make paddles and... And, um, and they take the bark for making baskets. Mm -hmm. Weaving and cedar rope. They would cut, do planks for longhouses. They wouldn't necessarily cut down the tree, but cutting down the tree was for canoes or mm -hmm. poles. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and that whole, that whole cedar, section in the museum is really cool like i had no idea you could make so many amazing things and um like especially the what did you call them where the it was like little baskets the balers balers so what are what were those used for um canoe balers would be in the canoe and it was to bail off the water <laughs> wait that makes sense that makes yeah sense. um and then you said um that so those ones are are actual artifacts and then you said somebody was like trying to replicate them? We have replicated a couple for our education boxes. Mm -hmm. So we've got education boxes that we developed in-house. Um, and they, in all fairness, they are not um, necessarily a canoe living family who did it, but a very, very, very talented weaver, um, mm -hmm. cedar weaver. Um, and they did crack. They have to be treated in a very certain way. And I don't know exactly how the bark is treated, but when you look at them in our case, 
it almost looks like leather. Yeah, it really does. It must have applied pitch okay. like to the exterior. Like they yeah. steamed them and then because it's kind of got the shiny oil too. Yeah. 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 Um, and I'm not sure. I, I, there has to be people that still specialize in making sure, those, yeah. but we, I just don't know. Yeah. We need to do more research. Yeah, I mean they're they're pretty amazing. They look they look like art in and of themselves. Yeah. Besides being like an actual practical tool. It's funny that you're so drawn to them. I mean, out of all of the thousands of people that have come in, I think that a cedar baler or a canoe baler gets overlooked the most. Yeah. I've never and had anyone comment. Ever. Oh, I don't know. Like something yeah, about I the should. shape of them, yes. and like I love it. I know. Like it's it's very pleasing to me. Yeah. I would I would take one, but I won't take it from you. Yeah. Um, if we ever sell them, I will. Call oh you my gosh! Them. Absolutely, yes. I would totally buy one of yeah. those. I mean, I love They're that. They're so I've pretty. Never had anybody appreciate a canoe dealer so much? It's just so. No, I just I love it. It's almost like um, gosh. Of course, I'm gonna totally blank on the name. Um, what is that called where it's like the little, um, like the scarves that they fold in like for Japanese, like your lunchbox or gifts or things yeah. like that, uh, like Fujoshi or something oh, like that. I'm, yeah. I'm totally butchering whatever the name is, but like the, the way that the edges are folded yeah. and that it has to be done that specific way for it to fit over the yes. handle and then to yeah. be tied down. Like there's just something very like, it's very beautiful. yeah, absolutely. Um, and then in that same room with the, like with all the cedar, um, you know, the life of the cedar, um, you've also got that really cool, um, like salmon display. Oh yeah. Um, and obviously, you know, I think you were saying that you guys were more traditionally a river tribe, um, versus like ocean going. Was that... Well, we didn't necessarily have access to the ocean. We've got access to the bay and the Salish yeah. Sea um, and lots of rivers. Yeah. But we, our canoes traditionally were not ocean going. Yeah. Yeah, until the, the giant one. Um, and then, so when, I think it was saying that salmon was basically a part of like every single meal. Yeah. Um, everything and store enough fish for the winter. Yeah. Drying salmon was a big part of the diet. Yeah. Yeah, and the, that um, display that you have in there, like the way that it's like split over the thing to dry, like I've never seen anything like that. It's so, like it totally makes sense. It's just something that like, I don't know that you would necessarily think of that just like off the top of your head. Like, oh my God, no, that makes so much sense. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of evidence that our people would brine the fish, too, in the oh, salt water. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cut it open, and you'd obviously store it in there to keep it fresh and cold, but yeah. it would brine the salmon as they well. Make it make fish heads in the sand. Yeah. No, now I'm getting hungry. Yeah, exactly. No, speaking of that food truck, we're done. No. Um, and then um, I'm trying to, like, visualize where we were walking in my head. Um, and then we had the um, like all the treaties and like interaction with, with the government and stuff like that. So when when was um, the Point Elliot Treaty? 1855. And how did that change life here? Oh well, I think it's important to note that the treaty was signed in 1855 by most bands and villages. Yeah. But it was not ratified until what 57. So, signing the treaty put you on an allotment of land with, um, I don't want to say minimal rights, but I feel like I do, you know, and yeah. it's freedom. I think that's fair. <laughs> but leaving the reservation was not one of them. You could yeah. not do that. We had an Indian official or a member of the Indian BIA, Asian, yeah. yeah, Asian. Oh, what does uh, BIA stand for? Bureau of Indian okay. Affairs. Um, but because it was not ratified until 57, people were put here with nothing. Put here without the ability to leave with nothing because yeah. it just sat for a number of years. Yeah. So during, before treaty times, uh, people could, you know, free roaming, gather, yeah. and go to the mountains, go fishing. After the treaty signing, you know, they were, they couldn't do that anymore. They're confined. So, 
they had the foresight to make sure that they had the right to gather and hunt and fish in their usual and accustomed territories mm -hmm. because land and resources are so vital to our people. Absolutely. So that was the main focus of the treaty agreement. But um, the government you know, promised a hospital, a school, um, a welding shop. Um, employment. Yeah. Employment, yeah, medical like care, teachers, but you know, Promises weren't met until yeah. many years later. Yeah. Years. Well, and still aren't always met. No. Yeah. Um, we get a lot of questions like why tribes would sign treaties, and Harriet's yeah. book talked about it a lot. You know, people were afraid of what would happen if they didn't sign the treaties, yeah. and people also needed access to these things that the government was providing. They could see the yeah. shift in the world and no longer, I don't know what they're doing, um, no longer, they must be testing the sprinklers, no longer could you, you know, trade for what you needed, you then needed money, so you needed a job, and yeah. new illnesses like the common cold, yeah. and strep throat, and influenza that were killing, and just you know, widespread through communities that we had never dealt with. Yeah. Um, traditionally, we would get sick and we'd go into a sweat yeah. and sweat out the illness. Well, if you do that with a fever, you die. Yeah. Um, so we needed access to modern medicine yeah. and healthcare from things that we had never seen before. Yeah. Um, we, you know, the treaty was done through a translator who spoke Chinook jargon you could say whatever you wanted. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that people and leaders saw the need to be able to speak English and uh, even read and write yeah. at the time. It's important to mention that Chinook jargon had a very limited vocabulary. Yeah. It was a trade language. Yeah. It was, trade it was nobody's main language. Yeah. So there was a translator who who spoke Lushuzi. Mm -hmm. And so there was like three different translations. Oh like, my gosh. <laughs> Well, and then, like, regardless of all the translators and everything, like, the actual document, like, when it's we written. looked at, Just, yeah, it's written in English, yeah. like, and to have that kind of, um, like, hold over people, like, where you're fearing for your family and your livelihood and your health and all of those things, and then to have that over your head, yeah, like, it's not a, it's not a good faith bargain from the beginning. And the government was forcing assimilation. And oh, yeah. We needed tools to, you know, um, comply. You yeah. couldn't live in your longhouse anymore and it didn't exist. They were burned. Um, you needed tools to be able to build a house. Or, yeah. you know, they, there's a whole panel that says they tried to make us farmers. Mm -hmm. um, oh, and yeah. while that may have worked in some areas, our soil is actually clay here. Yeah. <laughs> so you can't, you really can't grow anything in the yeah. natural ground. Yeah. So it changed life in every way. Absolutely. It was illegal to practice culture. It was illegal to leave the reservation. It was illegal to um, speak your language. It was literally illegal to be Indian. Yeah. So then how, um, like you said, um, Harriet covers it in, in her book, which I will definitely be picking up. Um, how did, because um, you said the shoot seed was not like, it didn't have like an alphanumeric, or, al or what is it, a no. Romana, yeah, Romanic? Yeah, it wasn't language. an oral language. It was an it was oral, oral language. language. It, it wasn't a written language. Yeah. So then how, um, how did, how were you guys able to preserve that, um, that knowledge and bring it forward when everything was like, everybody was trying to get assimilated? I think it's very fair to say that Lashuti was almost a dead language in this area. Um, there were many of the elders that absolutely refused to teach it oh, because yeah. it was a punishable crime to yeah. speak the language. Yeah. Um, they say that the language was beaten out of them. Yeah. Oh, gosh. So my so grandfather, sad. at almost 92, remembers hearing it from his grandma and his aunties, but they would never teach it to them so yeah. he obviously pick things up you know if they yeah. say something and do it but I asked him as a child why he didn't speak and it was it was not allowed in his yeah. family it yeah. was not allowed at all 
there was a professor from the University of Washington in the 70s or 80s? Tom Hess. Tom uh, Hess. He's from the University of Victoria, and mm -hmm. in the late 50s, he started interviewing various tribal members throughout Washington, mm -hmm. and he developed the first phonetic Okay, alphabet. yeah. So if you go back in there, into the temporary exhibit, you'll see the alphabet on the wall. Yeah. So each symbol has its own distinct sound. Yeah. It was a controversial thing for our elders at the time, too. Oh, yeah. Not every, I mean, he met with a group of women. Uh, one of them was my grandmother's grandma, Lizzie Price, who helped him develop and, you know, essentially teach him mm -hmm. the language. But it was controversial here. Like, yeah. Why would you do that? Why would you teach anybody? Yeah. I think that we have more language speakers today than we did 50 years ago. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Our kids are picking it up like sponges. <laughs> yeah, well, and I, I saw a thing in there that you guys do um, like a summer school yeah. for the for the language. Well, and we have a Lishutsi department that does college level classes every single year. I know Tessa did them. I started them twice and stopped. <laughs> scheduling. Yeah. I enjoy it, but scheduling is difficult. Um, yeah. But, you know, there's a huge effort to have more and more speakers mm -hmm. every year. And yeah. The Lishutsi department has a staff of like, 12 now. I thought it was like 20. Maybe. It's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. But it's like, even in um, even in the area, I want to say, like just driving by signs in different neighborhoods yeah. or different things like that, like actually seeing it written on things now is so special. Like to actually have that, like even if I can't pronounce it for the life of me, um, I'm definitely going to go look at that alphabet. But, um, you know, to be able to see that that change and, like, be more accessible for yeah. you guys, like, is so amazing. And to, um, like, to be able to not, not even just, like, maintain it, but, like, bring it back to life because it was almost gone yeah. is pretty cool. I don't think I want to say it was almost dead. I think it was just... What would you say? Repressed. Repressed. Yeah, so I think, yeah, that's word. probably a good word for it. Yeah. Especially if, if they were, you know, being punished for for speaking it or teaching it. Yeah. Yeah. And Lishixi is just interesting how to witness them evolve during the time of COVID. Like they've done a really good job of offering courses on Zoom for all oh, cool. jobs. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then we were talking a little bit like before, obviously, um, the treaty, you guys were able to move wherever you wanted to move and, um, you know, travel for different seasons and things like that. Um, when um, you've got the, the map that shows like all the different, all the different areas where, um, was, it, was it just um, Tulalip tribes or was it different tribes that were on oh, the map? No. We're compri comprised of like seven different bands okay. that were in the area. And we were really not nomadic. We stayed here. Everything we needed was here. I mean, there's areas to hunt mm -hmm. within this region. Um, if we wanted to dig clams, we could take our canoes yeah. over to Hat Island or Camino. Yeah. So we had sister villages all mm -hmm. over the place. And so then um, when for the different seasons, because it said something about different seasons, like... Um, yeah, likewise. So that's how we prepared and what we did during those Gotcha, seasons. gotcha, gotcha, yes. gotcha. It's like, yeah, because the longhouse isn't going anywhere. <laughs> yes, yeah. So, so like, then in the, the spring, we yeah. would start harvesting and in the spring, you know, you see gathering yeah. cedar and um, starting to fish and prepare for winter. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then... Um, Basically, just what is your guys' hope going forward um, on, you know, where you guys would like to grow next as the as the cultural center or like projects that you guys are working on right now? Well, <laughs> <laughs> or is everything kind of on hold right now? Like it's such a weird time. I think that things are not completely on hold. I mean. Our goal here is to educate. Yeah. Um, we want to break down stigmas. We want to let people know that we're still alive and well. Mm -hmm. We get asked a lot. 
I mean, and when I say a lot, it's like a ridiculous amount by children and adults if there are still Indians living on the reservation. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, I mean, you hear it so much, it's not even shocking anymore. Yeah. I, I think that there's this like stereotype that Indians were so long ago that we're so far removed from traditional living and we're really not, we're like four generations out. It's yeah. Not, it's not that long. So my hope and dream is always to just keep educating more people, to break down stereotypes, to um, help with, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you're not reading my mind, Tessa. <laughs> Spirit Halloween this year. Yeah. Like, wow. Oh my goodness. So, I don't know. That's just my hope. And just to educate people, to let them know yeah. um, that we're here, that we're functioning, we're a good neighbor, we're a good community, we have an active membership, we're thriving, we're healthy, yeah. we're good community members, yeah. and all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's good. Like, educate and connect yes. with people around. We have the opportunity to connect with people across the world. Yeah, yeah. Online. And I'd like to see more like online programming. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, lecture series. Yeah, or artist demonstrations. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh! Yes, that would be amazing. Yeah. Well, I, I hope you get to do it, and I'll be there for it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so Thank much. And thank you for listening. Uh, the Japanese fabric wrapping I couldn't remember is called Furoshiki, by the way. <laughs> and you can find more information, see some of the exhibits, and donate to the museum at hebulbculturalcenter.org. And of course, if you're a veteran, you have free admission to the museum tomorrow. You can find William Shelton's book called The Story of the Totem Pole or Indian Legends and Harriet Shelton Dover's book called To Lay Look From My Heart on Amazon and from bookshop.org if you'd like to get it from an independent bookstore. Pictures for this episode are on Instagram and Facebook at Puget Sounds Good. And if you know interesting people, unique businesses, and local adventures you think I could feature here, please share them by emailing me at jamie at pugetsoundsgood.com. Until next time, keep the cultural fires burning, and I'll see you around the sound.